Welcome to Just Participation. Today we have a very special episode where we'll be spotlighting one of Participedia's clusters, Democracy Across Borders. And before we get into our discussion on global assemblies, I'll let the RAs of the cluster introduce our episode topic and two upcoming guests. Hey Jenna, hey Joyce, how has it been lately? Hi Zena, thanks so much for having us. And I mean, on both our ends, it's been good. Our term just ended around last week. And so it's both, it's nice for both of us to be home. Jenna, how about you? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, It's, I think, going to be a busy winter break, but all self-imposed, so. (laughs) Same here, like mine also just finished last week, and it feels like I suddenly have all these extra hours in my day, as if like a huge chunk of my day just opened up. So for the first couple of days, like I didn't know what to do with them, but it's it's starting to fill up again. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, it always fills right back up. We should probably first introduce ourselves and your roles as RAs for the Democracy Across Borders cluster. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm happy to start off. Um, so obviously, my name is Joyce. I'm a sophomore at Harvard, and I'm studying a mix of government and ethnicity, migration, and rights. And so I've actually been working with Participedia since my 11th grade year in high school, when I reached out to Dr. Mark Warren and Um, I started doing some basic case entry for him, and I just had the privilege of continuing that ever since I got to Harvard. And so right now I serve as the lead RA for Participedia at Harvard, and Jen and I kind of split the work for the Democracy Across Borders cluster between us, where I focus on the transnational citizens assemblies kind of working group within the cluster, and I'll let Jenna introduce what she does as well. Hi, so I'm Jenna. Um, I'm also a sophomore at Harvard, but I joined Participedia much, much later than Joyce. Um, So I joined the spring of my freshman year because Joyce introduced me to the position and the network. Um, Yeah, and so since then, I've been kind of like following Joyce's lead um, as a person with much more experience. Um, But it's been really good for the two of us to to work on this together. Um, So I've been working with the Transnational Social Movements Working Group within the DAB cluster. Um, And so I guess what Joyce and I kind of do within our respective working groups is kind of facilitate whatever project we're focusing on at the moment. Um, So that means that we kind of do different things depending on what is needed at the time. So sometimes that's writing up cases and doing the research for that. Sometimes that's doing literature reviews. Sometimes it's doing like admin work um, and the like. Yeah, we're very happy to have both of you here on board with Pridespedia. And like in addition to your roles here, I also want to know about your experiences, how it has been like being a student in Partspedia. Yeah. Um, so uh Joyce, if you don't mind, um, at least for me, it's been it's been really great. I think it was like one of the first times I've have had like that much interface with not just one professor, but like a whole group of them. Um, and it's also I think really cool that it's a unique opportunity to meet a mix of professors and practitioners um, and to just get like a really interesting not clash but like dynamic between the two perspectives Um, and they're also like it's just such a supportive community I think where it's not just like you know Joyce and I show up to meetings and we like take notes on what they say but they also like are very encouraging of us giving our opinions of us um, letting them know what like what we found through our literature reviews um it's it's been like a very kind of wholesome experience. 
Yeah, and I think just to add on to what Jenna says, um, I know both of us are super appreciative of the degree of freedom that we're given um, from our higher ups in the cluster as well. And so whatever Jenna and I define to be our areas of interest, we're allowed to initiate and spearhead and assist with projects that kind of align with those goals. And so um, we can definitely touch on this further, but a couple of the things that we work on for the cluster, um, for example, a paper about transnational citizens assemblies, they really, really allow us to kind of meld um, both the study and practice of transnational deliberation and democratic innovation. And so we're really grateful for that opportunity all in all. We've just loved every single moment. And that's actually the exact reason we really wanted to have you on this episode today, because as RAs for your cluster at this point, you know, it's ins and outs. You've been constantly interacting with the members. I'm sure at this point, your inbox is full of cluster related emails to everyone. So I thought, you know, who best to introduce the Democracy Across Borders cluster, whether it be the mission statement, resource goals, the discussed deliverables that you mentioned, just anything you'd like to spotlight about your work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can start by just giving a quick introduction of what the cluster entails, why it was formed, et cetera. And then Jenna, you can speak to what we've done specifically for it, if that's okay with you. Um, yeah, and so basically the cluster formed <laughs> in response to the fact that there are a lot of existential um, multi-dimensional issues that kind of don't map well onto existing borders. And so, for example, climate change, security, water governance, those are things that aren't self-contained within um, the boundaries of a country. And so we felt it was important to kind of research how democratic governance can operate outside of formal state borders. And that democracy looks like participation, not just through formal voting channels, but also through discourse and assemblies and um, self-initiated mobilization. And so this process of trying to solve transnational problems is what really excites and interests us. And I'll leave it to Jenna to talk about how we've tried to do that. Yeah. Um, so as we kind of mentioned earlier, it means that we're pursuing a lot of like smaller projects at once. So part of that is uploading cases to Participedia um, and kind of doing the research on that. I think one of the cool things is, as um, Joyce was saying, we do get a lot of like leeway as to what cases we want to research. So it's not like they tell us, you know, these are the five cases that we want uploaded. We get like a lot of discretion into what we're personally interested in. Um, some of the other things that we work on is because Participedia is a pretty like new platform and network, um, you know, and it's still like doing a lot of evolution and figuring out how to like adapt the platform to the new insights that are being developed. Um, so one of the things that we also do is kind of like help give suggestions as to how to edit the fixed field inputs for when people are inputting cases into Participedia. Um, and that also means that like we end up doing research on things that aren't looked into that often, like um, I just to speak on Joyce's behalf really quickly, um, like there isn't a huge amount of research done on like the methodology of like running a transnational citizens assembly. Um, and so it means that like, you know, Joyce in particular does like a lot of research into that and gets to, I think, do a lot of like innovation and creative thinking into how to break that system down. Um, and then the two other things that we're also working on is 
the synthetic paper, uh, again, that Joyce mentioned, um, kind of classifying that methodology. And then lastly, we're also trying to get a summer school about transnational citizens assemblies um, going sometime next year, right? Yeah, and I believe our guests today will um, further elaborate on those deliverables. Also, I love that you both mentioned uh, leeway, that that freedom. It's the same for us at the podcast here as well. It just makes the whole process more fun. It just motivates us to uh, continue doing what we're doing. So I'm happy that you guys are uh, on the same boat as us. And as we were reading through the cluster works, uh, two themes, two, I guess, two topics kept coming up. Transnational Citizens Assemblies, TSAs, and Transnational Social Movements, TSMs. So during this process, what have you guys learned about them? How would you describe them? How do they relate? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's convenient that Jen and I actually kind of split the work between us. And so I focus on the former, she focuses on the latter. And I can start off by explaining what transnational citizens assemblies kind of are. And so those are kind of a new concept as Jenna's answer previously alluded to, um, because transnational citizens assemblies by their nature try to respond to nuanced issues that kind of transcend borders of a nation state. And generally, they'll bring together individuals from multiple nations, and they exhibit very similar characteristics to transnational citizens' assemblies, or sorry, regular citizens' assemblies. But there are some problems and some features that I think are worth studying and also distinct enough to be studied about TCAs. And those are some characteristics that we're kind of exploring in our current deliverables now. And so those conceptual intricacies are things like how does governance look within this assembly? How does accountability operate when there are so many people from so many regions? How do you make sure that everyone is included and that the discourse output, the outputs of your discourse are meaningful and representative? All of those things are problems pretty specific to TCAs, but also why they're so interesting. And I'll leave TSMs in relation to Jenna. Yeah, um, so TSMs or transnational social movements in in a general sense are kind of exactly what you think, right? You know, if you if you know what a social movement is, then transnational is just that like across borders. Um, and I think what's interesting about them, though, is that they're really hard to classify because sometimes they arise because people are responding to a shared issue where the issue also like is kind of borderless like climate change. And so it makes sense for the movement to also rise up in a kind of borderless sense. Um, sometimes it's because like the people who are most affected like don't really belong to a particular state or can't access that state. So like externally displaced refugees tend to band together because they can't do it within a state. Um, in other cases, it's a social movement that could arise as kind of like a national social movement, but it arises because like national social movements make allies with other national social movements if they're bonded around a similar issue. So like indigenous groups, um, from different countries in Latin America might all come together to make someone sort of like pan South American um, indigenous social movement. So it's really interesting to think about the different ways they arise and also to think about like what counts as transnational, right? Like to what degree is two movements that are national movements like just working together um, and, you know, communicating if like the leadership members like go to conferences together does that does that make them the same movement or is that just you know cooperation between two distinct movements so 
because transnational social movements also tend to not have like strict organizations that um, have like that type of top-down structure, that kind of porous boundary is also something that is, I think, like begs a lot of interesting questions um, and is something that we're focusing on as a working group. Um, so the two, like the TCAs and the TSMs, they kind of arose because they were both ways for citizens from different countries to kind of come together to address what are usually shared problems. Um, but we decided to split along the two groups because I guess um, to, to generalize the differences between them, like transnational citizens assemblies tend to be more top down, you know, organized by, you know, some larger organization, like maybe the Danish Board of Technology. Transnational social movements tend to be like somewhat more organic. Um, and so I think those were the main reasons why we decided to split off into two working groups. Thank you for the overview. It, it helps me a lot to put them into perspective, to get that context for the rest of the episode, which, as you know, features two researchers and coordinators that will represent the cluster. They both focus on transnational citizens assemblies. And since you've worked with them for some time now, you know them a lot better than what I merely read about them. That's why in your own words, how would you describe, how would you introduce our guests? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And Jen and I have both had the privilege of working with Antoine and John in various ways, um, most saliently, I think, just within the cluster and also on more specific projects, like um, in for Antoine, at least, we work with him to set up the transnational summer school that I'm sure he's mentioned. And also we've um, name dropped a couple times with John. We've focused on things like our synthetic paper with him. And I think both of them are just such incredible and interesting people. I know that Antoine focuses a lot on his work at Mission Publique, and he's really interested in, again, helping us um, run initiatives that kind of will bring together both practitioners and also um, academics in the transnational citizens assembly sphere. We've really, really appreciated everything he's done for us and every conversation with him, we leave having learned a little bit more. And I think same with John with his work for Eye for Policy. I know we were joking about this right before we started filming, but it's true that John is almost always in a different place, but still making the same impact. And we work with him primarily now on the synthetic paper that we're working on. But overall, both of those experiences have just reinforced over and over just how motivated and brilliant some people in this sphere are. And ironically enough, when Jenna and I were trying to do things like examine certain cases or fix inputs in Participedia, Oftentimes, it would be Antoine and John that we could go to to ask questions because they ran the very case studies that we study. And so for John, that would be, for example, the Global Assembly on Climate Change. For Antoine, that would be a bunch of worldwide, worldwide views events and also a recent dialogue involving a lot of young adults on COP23. And so, yeah, they're both wonderful people and we are so lucky to get to work with them in such a close capacity. Thank you for introducing them. Now I'm even more excited to be talking to them. I was already excited, but this even <laughs> this even amplified that. So yeah, we'll we'll come back to both of you at the end of the episode for a wrap up. So uh, see you in a bit, guys. Hi, John. Welcome to Just Participation. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Um, so this is the first cluster episode we're doing. 
uh, Jenna and Joyce already introduced the cluster and just a, a bit a bit about you. Uh, so could you also tell us a bit about yourself and the work you're doing? Yeah, so my name is John Stever and I co-founded the Innovation for Policy Foundation, I for Policy, and I also co-initiated and coordinated the Global Assembly on the Climate and Ecological Crisis. And um, yeah, my work really centers around how to get people more involved in governance processes, of course, at the global level, but also at the, the national and, and regional level as well. And coming back to the cluster uh, at Participedia, which is Democracy Across Borders cluster, what themes or uh, issues, what work have you been focusing on that? Yeah, we've been really exploring innovations around transnational governance and particularly looking into efforts to bring citizens together across borders, to learn together, to set agendas together and take decisions together. Um, and ultimately we're really looking to contribute to our collective understanding of these processes. Um, so in this, you know, we, we really see that we're at a, a very common sort of um, at, at a moment similar to where we were about 20 years ago with national citizens assemblies um, in this transnational space. And we see there's really an opportunity to uh, to really understand what these processes look like. And so we're, we've are we been starting to work on a sort of, we call it a synthetic paper, uh, very much inspired by Dr. Arkan Fung's uh, article of recipes for the trends for the national public sphere um, from about 20 years ago. And we're looking at sort of, um, you know, revisiting that kind of piece and exploring some of the variations in the design of transnational assemblies, and then taking some of the learnings from that and um, looking at how we could support uh, summer school and more learnings amongst, um, particularly uh, amongst international diplomats and uh, and others that could that could sort of um, be engaged in in developing and implementing uh, more of these transnational democratic innovations. Um, so you mentioned the Innovation for Policy Foundation. Uh, could you please briefly introduce us to I for Policy as well? We would love to hear more about that. Yeah, thank you. So I for Policy is really an incubator of participatory governance. And so we're really working to, to reimagine and build new governance infrastructure to really rethink the way that citizens can be involved in decision making and what what uh, you know we often call democracy, what democracy could mean. Um, and so in this sense, I for Policy has supported a, a bunch of different types of projects. Um, we really started on the African continent working uh, around innovation entrepreneurship policies, because this is an area where it's really easy to articulate common interest and to sort of create a very non-adversarial sort of space for dialogue between citizens, civil society, private sector, and government to really be able to come together and work together and spend less time focusing on what are we trying to achieve and more time focusing on how do we best achieve that. Uh, and so really bringing in different forms of participatory governance. Um, so for example, um, you know, in, in 2019, we supported a participatory lawmaking process in Senegal, where a citizen drafted law um, went through about 20 iterations um, using a variety of tools like a Facebook messenger chatbots and um, you know organizing sort of public policy hackathons and town hall meetings that were televised um, nationally um, and, and ultimately resulted in in a national law that was 
drafted by citizens being approved by the National Assembly and then signed into law by the president. Um, and we've we've supported a number of national lawmaking processes like this. For example, in Nigeria and DRC, there's a, a new law coming in, in Rwanda. Um, we hope very soon that was developed by um, citizens and through stakeholder input. Um, and then, of course, we've been involved in a lot of regional and national policymaking processes as well. Of course, the Global Assembly, which I'll talk about, um, but we're also working with the African Union to develop a uh, digital uh, citizen engagement platform uh, to support the African Union, regional economic communities and member states across the African continent to engage with citizens online um, in, in, through consultative, consultative processes. Wow. Okay. So there's there's a lot of detail we could go into about I for policy. This is much needed work. But before that, I wanted to get some background for us. This is this is gonna seem like an abrupt question at this point, but what are global citizens' assemblies? Okay, well, first of all, we have to think about what are citizens' assemblies. And so a citizens' assembly uh, is generally it's a body of citizens who come together to discuss. Uh, really to deliberate together on a given issue and provide a set of recommendations or options or a collective decision. Um, and there are a few characteristics of these assemblies. Uh, the first is that participants are, are representative of the wider population. And this is often through what political scientists call sortition or lottery selection process. Um, and the second characteristic is that um, they generally all involve similar uh, phases. So a learning phase where the members of the assembly will learn about a given issue, then they'll spend some time in dialogue and deliberation, and then there will be a process of sort of decision-making and, and drafting of proposals. Um, the, the third sort of common characteristic is that facilitation is often provided independently of the convening and organizing bodies. And then finally, um, information materials for these assemblies. So the, the sort of um, the materials that are used during this learning journey are often uh, sought to be balanced. So to make sure that um, they pick up on sort of multiple sides and perspectives of a given of a given issue um, and seek to be really um, factually accurate, according to um, scientists. Um, and then, um, you know, it's important to recognize that, that the Citizens Assembly itself is often considered to be sort of the more robust or elaborate model of representative deliberative processes. Um, and that's that's to say that there are other forms of transnational deliberative processes. The Citizens Assembly is, is often really considered to be the most robust. Um, and I, I really think that, um, and as I mentioned before, that we're at a sort of similar moment in this transnational assemblies as we were with national assemblies about 20 years ago. Um, and, and when we talk about sort of global citizens assemblies, what we're talking about is essentially organizing a, a citizens assembly, but therefore at the global level. Um, and that's that's really what our transnational, what our democracy across borders cluster has been concerned with is kind of understanding these, um, you know, deliberative processes where you bring in, um, you know, residents and citizens from more than one nation state participating. And the yeah, the global citizens assembly, for example, in the climate and ecological crisis is really a sort of um, planetary manifestation of that. Um, and it's important to to just emphasize that when we talk about participants of these citizens' assemblies being representative, we don't mean um, in the sense of a electoral representative democracy where someone is sort of elected or chosen to represent a given population. We mean representative in the statistical sense. So the representatives are statistically representative of the of the wider population. Okay, now I can. Uh 
ask about what I've been trying to get at since the beginning. Uh, you mentioned the Global Assembly on the Climate and Ecological Crisis. I've been very excited for this. There's a lot I want to ask about that. But first, could you provide some background as to what the Global Assembly is and how it came about? Yeah, so the, the Global Assembly is really a recognition that the ecological crisis and, and ultimately many, if not all of the, the major sort of challenges that we face as a species are... Um, you know, expand beyond the sort of arbitrary borders of uh, modern nation states. Um, and we're not able to solve these crises unless we can ultimately solve the crisis of governance. So how do we as a species govern ourselves and govern our planet um, collectively in a way that's sort of legitimate and, and fair that elevates our collective intelligence? And so um, with the Global Assembly, we, we sought to organize a Global Citizens Assembly uh, and to fairly select a governance body of 100 people in which everyone on Earth would have an equal opportunity to be included. Um, in order to do that, we had to develop a four-step global uh, lottery process. This is the first time a global uh, sortition um, in our knowledge has ever been attempted. Um, and so in order to do that, we, we first had to start out with a global location lottery. Uh, unlike with a, you know, a normal citizens assembly process at a national or subnational level, we don't have a sort of voter registry or a database of, of citizens at a planetary level. Um, so we needed to be able to, to start off and to be able to identify a sort of starting point for selecting uh, the members of the assembly. And so what we did was we took a NASA database that, that looks at population density overlaid on a 2D model of planet Earth. We ordered that database and we selected 100 um, random, basically people out of 7.8 billion and then identified which administrative area on planet Earth they came from. Where do they live? And we developed an algorithm to ensure that there was a sort of no overrepresentation of any particular uh, region or, um, or nation state as defined by uh, sort of UN member states so that we could have sort of a fair distribution of humanity geographically across planet Earth. And so then once we ended up with these 100 geographic locations, we selected then local community organizations, and we sought to really uh, identify, you know, authentic local community conveners, organizations that were already convening communities within, within their local area. And we worked to identify an organization at each of these points. And then we worked to train these organizations to conduct on-street recruitment. And so essentially, if there was a, a sort of geographic location that was selected nearby, you might have had someone knocking on your door saying, hello, would you like to participate in a global citizens assembly? And ultimately, they were working to um, build up a pool of potential candidates for the global citizens assembly. So um, all of these 100 locations recruited about 700 people. And then the final step was to conduct a lottery of those 700 people such that the uh, final selection would, would match global population demographic characteristics according to gender, age, their um, sort of uh, educational outcome, which was, which was really also a proxy for their socioeconomic status because they're extremely highly correlated. And then finally, we were also looking at their perspective on the climate and ecological crisis to ensure that we didn't end up with a, with a biased um, group of people. Because, of course, the challenge with 
you know, direct participatory democracy processes that are, you could say, open for all, where anyone could participate. They're, the people that are more likely to participate are often those that are wealthier, more educated, and or that care more about a given issue. And so we wanted to try and make sure that the Citizens Assembly really was as accurately representative of the human population as possible, of course, um, to the extent with which 100 people could possibly represent the incredible diversity of humanity. Um, but so we we also looked at their perspective on the climate and ecological crisis to see um, if, um, yeah, to make sure that we had members of the assembly um, that, that also didn't believe that the climate was in an emergency. Um, and so we basically took some uh, global data on, on each of these demographic characteristics. And so we conducted a global lottery that picked 100 people to be able to then match these demographic characteristics. We ended up with um, people from 49 countries being selected. They spoke 42 different languages. Um, only about two thirds of the assembly members were fully literate. 11 members were fully illiterate. 60% lived on less than a dollar, or sorry, $10 per day. And of all of the assembly members, 34 had never been on a video call before, not even on a, on a phone. Um, so it was really, um, I think, quite striking how, how much that, that group of people kind of looks um, very different from what global decision-making bodies uh, generally look like. Um, and so the idea was that these 100 people, uh, fairly selected, um, came together and spent 68 hours deliberating about the climate and ecological crisis. They were provided with information materials that was developed by a group of, um, we called it the, the Knowledge and Wisdom Committee. It was a group of scientists chaired by Sir Bob Watson, who's chaired both the IPCC and IPBES reports, and was also um, accompanied by indigenous wisdom keepers from Mexico, petroleum engineer from Nigeria, um, and in a range of other sort of scientific disciplines to be able to, to co-draft a set of information materials um, to support the learning journey of the assembly members. Uh, they were also provided with witness testimonies, and they were also, um, they also observed uh, COP26, uh, and then essentially worked together to develop what they called the People's Declaration for the Sustainable Future of Planet Earth. Yeah, this lottery style starting point deliberately and explicitly steering away from biases is a very exciting way of going about things. I hadn't uh, heard of that before, like you said, striking. And despite these efforts, as you know, sometimes assemblies can be both exclusionary as much as they are inclusionary. In response to that, how did the integration of partnerships make the global assembly more accessible for communities such as neighborhoods and schools? Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, with the Global Assembly, we really sought to address the potential exclusionary effects of a sort of citizens' assembly, um, and rather, we 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 really sought to try and open up governance as much as possible. That was really the purpose of the assembly, and so. Um, the first thing that we did was we tried to organize and build the global assembly itself in terms of its operational organizational structure as decentralized as possible. And it, we were trying to work as close to the people that were selected to be members of the assembly as possible. And so we put out an open call for uh, partner organizations. We called it the community of practice for the global assembly. We ended up um, recruiting more than 400 people and organizations from 110 countries to um, co-implement the Global Citizens Assembly with us. Um, and importantly, 
this decentralization approach was also reflected, as I mentioned just before, in the in the sort of lottery process yeah. that the um, members of the assembly were being recruited locally by a, a, a local community organization, and they were then actually hosted through the assembly by this local community organization. So every single person was hosted um, within their own local context in a local community space where they were provided with internet connectivity, a stipend, and every single member of the assembly was provided with a personal translator to be able to translate from their language into English as an exchange language and from English back into their local language. Um, and so essentially every single member of the assembly, we tried to, to ensure that they were hosted and supported locally. Um, the second thing that we that we did was we we tried to ensure that the global assembly wasn't just this core citizens assembly of 100 people. We wanted to make sure that other people could access the learning materials, um, but also to be able to have local dialogues. And so we developed what we called the community assembly um, model. We we created a sort of DIY kit essentially where communities anywhere in the world could also host decentrally autonomously their own local community assembly, having very similar conversations to what the members of the core assembly could have and addressing local issues that were that were relevant, um, that are relevant for the climate and ecological crisis. Um, and, and this idea of kind of creating a multiplicity of forums is, is really important. And it's really something that we see emerging from transnational um, democratic innovations. More generally, we see this emergence of kind of a multiplicity of forums. Um, and so with the Global Assembly, we had these community assemblies. There's also an um, effort to bring artists together to be able to communicate about the climate and ecological crisis, about this reimagining of global governance that we were doing with the Global Assembly, and to be able to kind of put that into popular culture, into music, into uh, visual arts, et cetera, uh, to be able to access and, and, and reach even, even more people, engage even more people in this, in this process. Um, you already mentioned a lot of uh, new approaches to this kind of decision making, um, moving forward knowledge mobilization in as much of a diverse and inclusive way as possible. I want to ask if there are maybe more innovative approaches that came out of the that emerged out of the assembly. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what I love so much about transnational democratic innovations is that because they're new. And they present so many challenges. I mean, the level bridging this level of diversity that I was just describing with the Global Citizens Assembly is really unprecedented in these kinds of forums. Um, and, you know, bridging language and culture. Um, and it, it really is sort of a, a huge opportunity to kind of understand how might we encourage more inclusion? How might we support people from such incredible differences to be able to deliberate and dialogue together? And so Transnational Citizens Assembly is produce a lot of innovations in general. And I think you could say that um, for a lot of the um, examples that have been mapped by Participedia. Um, but for example, you have, you know, hand signals was something that we developed during the, the labs. We, we organized a set of labs uh, with our partners from Deliberativa last summer. Um, basically before the Global Citizens Assembly was taking place, we wanted to understand how would deliberation happen with consecutive translation being hosted uh, locally by um, by you know non-professional translators, for instance. Um, what would the dialogue look like? How might we introduce them to learning materials? And and through that lab process, we realized that it was very important to develop hand signals. And this is something that 
for example, movements have used uh, a lot in the past, but it's something that we're, we're not aware of other um, citizens' assembly processes using before. But So we developed hand signals. Um, you know, things like waving your hands um, is uh, sign language in many, many cultures um, for applause. Um, so, for example, we introduced that. You put your hands together to say thank you. Um, and we also developed a few original hand signals, things like putting one hand in the palm of your other hand as a way of indicating that you have something in your hand that you want to offer to the group. Um, and what's interesting about that is that, of course, you know, there's a lot of precedent for like, okay, I want to speak, so I'm going to raise my hand. Um, you guys are, are students, so you must be familiar with that. The teacher asks for, for input and you raise your hand to be called on. Um, you know, in some cultures, actually putting your, your, the, your palm towards someone could be considered rude. Um, but more importantly, uh, a lot of times dialogue is sort of structured in the sense that people raise their hand because they want to be heard. And of course, good deliberative practice um, is really about ensuring that when people speak, they're they're trying to contribute to the collective understanding. And so we even designed the hand signals in such a way to really reinforce these principles of good deliberation. So the hand signal, for instance, for um, wanting to, to speak was actually intentionally designed to communicate that you have something to offer the conversation. You wanna to contribute to the collective consciousness and collective understanding of the group. You have another perspective that you would like to offer. Um, and so, yeah, these hand signals is, is one example of, a, of an innovation in terms of supporting communication between members of the assembly um, that we've seen since used in other uh, transnational citizens assembly processes. Um, of course, the, um, the geographic sortition approach is something that's, um, from our understanding, really innovative because yeah, generally you would use a sort of database, voter registry, social security, or something else to be able to identify members of an assembly. So this geographic sortition approach is also something quite innovative. Um, we also developed um, new forms of sort of learning material anchors. Um, and I think it's really important for, for you guys to be aware and for your listeners to be aware that you know, if you can understand a time series graph, you're probably in the top 25% of, of humanity. Um, we know that only about 20% of humanity has higher than 12 years of education. Um, and it's not really common for the majority of humanity to be able to understand complex time series data presented in a graph. Um, you know, it's something, of course, you guys are probably very familiar with looking at every day in class and um, newspapers, et cetera. But this really isn't, um, you know, necessarily common practice for people to understand information through through graphs. And so we created what we call the seven generation anchoring exercise. So in the very beginning of the assembly, we asked all of the members of the assembly to share with each other their family histories. They would share back the story of their great grandparents. And so this was an opportunity for the members to be able to connect with each other and to foster empathy. But these seven gener this, this story of their great grandparents also provided us with an opportunity to try and kind of map when were their great grandparents born. And then we got them to share about their own lives and then to share about their great grandchildren. And even if they weren't planning on having great grandchildren, maybe when their members of their community might have great grandchildren, and to first of all, share with us a vision for their great-grandchildren's lives before they were exposed to the climate and ecological crisis, all of the, the data, um, the very difficult um, reality that we're facing. Um, 
in terms of the future projections of the climate and ecological crisis. Um, so we got them to share a vision and a dream for their great-grandchildren's lives. Um, and then we got them to estimate when they might be born. And so what we ended up with was sort of a time series of their family history. And we could overlay that, that seven generational anchoring. So essentially seven generations with themselves being in the middle uh, over time series graphs to be able to, to sort of turn any kind of time series data into a narrative that the members of the assembly could understand. Um, in addition, so there's like, you know, uh, innovations around communication, there's innovations around selection, innovations around information materials, and then we were also developing innovations around the actual co-production of the outcome of the assembly. So how can people that come from um, 49 different countries and speak 42 different languages actually collectively draft a document together? Um, so we developed um, this sort of co-creation approach that was in three steps, and so the members of the assembly would work together in small groups of five, um, maximally sort of diversified within these sort of three-hour time zone windows so that they could come together in their evenings. They would work together in these small groups. They would develop inputs to what they chose to call the People's Declaration for the Sustainable Future of Planet Earth. This actually also, even the name went through a similar co-creation process. Um, but the co-creation process that was taking place in each of these groups of five all of their inputs then went to a group of independent editors, which would then edit all of their inputs together into a common document and go back to the members of the assembly for inputs in these small groups. And this process would be repeated three times um, before eventually you would end up with a document that was um, essentially uh, reflected the inputs from all of the different um, members of the assembly through their 20 breakout groups of five. Um, and then ultimately they voted on each of the sections of the People's Declaration. So this is sort of a, also a sort of new approach for exploring how we might co-create, um, yeah, across so many different lines of difference, but also across 17 hours of time zone differences. Wow. It's, so I, I don't really know what to say. Having learned about all these processes, the innovations, um, co-creation and building these actual connections across political borders. I also wanted to ask about one of the results. So based on the outputs, these very personal stories from the community forums, the 2021 Global Assembly Report, which is about 600 pages, was published. So which key learnings from the report would you like to highlight? Yeah, thank you so much. And so actually the report itself, I think is probably around 200 pages, but in total we published over 600 pages of, you know, we published the entire facilitation guide for the Global Assembly. We published uh, also all of the supplemental learning materials and annexes, uh, including, you know, contracts with our facilitators, for instance. We really tried to open source and that was one of our main values um, for the Global Assembly was, was sort of openness. We really wanted to publish absolutely everything. Um, and this was important for us because we want to support other people to learn from this work. We know that there is um, sort of infinite possibilities to reimagine our global governance and to improve our global governance. And so we really wanted to publish as much as possible uh, to support other people to carry forward this work of innovation. Um, and so I think one of the main learnings from the Global Citizens Assembly um, is that reimagining global governance is not utopian, it is possible. And I think that is the most important message that we can come together across humanity and take decisions that are infinitely reasonable. And that is absolutely possible to do. 
So there's no reason why our decision-making at a global level cannot include more citizen voices. And I think that's the, the key learning from uh, this sort of more than 600 pages of publication at the end of the Global Assembly. Um, and I think it's also important to highlight, I've mentioned it a few times, the People's Declaration for the Sustainable Future of Planet Earth was the outcome from the core assembly itself, from the 100-person uh, core assembly of the Global Assembly. And this document has seven key points, and I think each of them are very beautiful. I would recommend your readers to, to, to go to the Global Assembly website, to read the People's Declaration, um, and to recognize that, that some elements of that People's Declaration have already come to... Um, have already been realized. So one of the statements of the People's Declaration was that it was critical to recognize the right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment as a UN, as a universal human right. And um, it's exciting to, to share that the UN General Assembly actually recognized the right to the environment as a universal declaration of human rights just this summer. Um, but there is more work to be done. Um, the People's Declaration for the Sustainable Future of Planet Earth further called for nature to intrinsically have rights. So it's not just enough for humanity to have rights to nature. Nature itself should have rights. This could be protected through ecocide laws, for example. And just as importantly, this universal declaration of human rights needs to be protected at the level of a global covenant or a convention. So it needs to be monitored and enforced at global levels to ensure that it's not just a, a right that looks great on paper, but it's something that really guides and informs um, our actions as, as humanity, as nation states, uh, as local municipalities, etc. So you mentioned what should be done, what we need to be doing. Um, but more specifically, what do you expect the future of global democratic innovations to look like at this point? Yeah, so I think it's really important to recognize that the challenges that we face are global. They're interconnected. Um, and, you know, we we recognize that the deliberative practices uh, through, for example, citizens' assemblies produce better outcomes. They're um, you know, not only do they produce what you could call epistemic value or sort of they, they sort of generate learnings and generate knowledge through collective intelligence. And so they actually produce better outcomes. They produce better policies. They produce better results. But they're also more legitimate for normative reasons. It is critical that humans that we recognize that that it is a right for humanity to, to be involved, you know, for people to be involved in the decisions that concern their lives. And that's, you know, we talk about global democratic innovations. It's really what we're talking about. How can citizens be involved in the major decisions that shape their lives? Um, and so for these two reasons, this kind of normative and, and instrumental justifications, um, you know, we can see it's really it's really obvious that, that we should have more of these um, global democratic innovations. And so I think that's the first thing is that I just expect to see more of them. Um, and I, I think it's important at this point to also um, kind of reflect back and, and kind of where we are as a species at the moment and to see that in kind of a historical context. Um, you know, 11,000 years ago, we talk about something called the Neolithic revolution when humanity discovered agriculture. And I think we're at a kind of similar moment that we were 11,000 years ago. Humanity had developed this productive technology to, to sort of cultivate crops that would allow us to be able to live in settlements. But we hadn't at that time in the beginning of that discovery sort of made the social 
technological discoveries to be able to actually live together in groups larger than kind of hunter-gatherer communities. And we see the remnants of societies that grew to about 100 and 150 people and would start to collapse because they hadn't started developing the kind of common myths and customs and norms that wouldn't sort of create social cohesion of humanity at larger scale. And so this, this kind of innovations that accompanied the, the sort of Neolithic revolution sort of carry forward to today into what we see as the modern nation state. So we, you know, flags, national anthems, sports like football, these are all sort of norms and customs that sort of create the cohesion that that bring us together and enable us to live together as, as humanity in larger numbers. Um, and the challenge is that our productive technology um, has reached a point where, you know, we can, we can travel uh, anywhere that we want to in, you know, half a day. Um, we can call people on the other side of the, of the planet. We can produce at scale. Um, in fact, to the point where um, we are essentially creating a new geological epoch, um, the sort of Anthropocene. So humanity is literally reshaping uh, the, you know, fundamental um, sort of structure of planet Earth, um, where we're engendering what is uh, sometimes referred to as the sixth extinction. Um, there are processes that are underway that we're basically shaping as a species. And we haven't, it's our productive technology hasn't been matched yet by the social technologies that allow us to control that productivity, that allow us to live together at a planetary level. And so I, I think that it's it's critical that we continue to innovate and evolve, explore, provoke, push our collective governance uh, structures even further. And I really believe that this sort of human to human form of governance is is going to be critical. And I think it's far superior to what we see when we look at sort of independent, self-interested nation states coming together to take decisions at an international level. And on the topic of exploration and learning, that's a perfect gateway to our final question. What do you hope to be able to contribute, explore, or learn from the Participedia community? Yeah, thank you. I mean, Participedia is everything that the world needs right now. It's a group of academics, students, and practitioners like myself and others that, that come together to be able to learn. So we're thinking about theory, but we're also thinking about how does that theory apply in reality, and we're trying to share our learnings with others. I really hope to be able to contribute our learnings as I for policy. Um, some of the kind of tools and methodologies, ontologies, the kind of vocabularies that we're developing to be able to describe and, and sort of innovate governance processes and to be able to learn from others in the process. I'm really excited about the, the paper that we're working on together as a cluster, uh, trying to kind of capture the essence of, um, you know, a variety of different transnational democratic innovations and, and looking forward to uh, being able to offer those learnings to other practitioners and other academics through the summer school process. Yeah, we're also looking forward to it. And before we go, uh, I want to say you were reflecting on the current moment in history. And today, for most of us, I guess that reflection may be overshadowed by negative reality. So I'm happy that you emphasized hope and learning about all the thoughtful work, effort and voice that went into the Global Assembly also amplifies that hope for us. So thank you for your participation. Wow. Thank you, Zainab, so much for having me. Have a beautiful day. Hi, Antoine. Welcome to Just Participation. How have you been doing today? Very good, actually, very good. This morning I had the nice sun. Was was perfect. Yeah. It. What time is it there right now? 
So now it's uh, two uh, in the afternoon. Okay. On Wednesday. Okay, it's eight a.m. for us. So just just the sun, the sun just starts to shine. Let's let's put yes. it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and. A quick introduction for myself. My name is Zeynep. I'm a research assistant here at Participedia. And reading through your bio before the interview, I saw, you know, internet governance, space governance, global governance. And I know that I don't know at least one of those terms. So I, I would love to learn about it. That's why I wanted to start right away by asking if you could tell us a bit about yourself and the work you're doing. Yeah, very good. So my name is Antoine. I am uh, one of the co-directors at Mission Public. And Mission Public is a team of 15, 20 people. Um, and we work basically on how to improve governance. Governance being the forest. Um, how do we take collective decisions? So the way we as humans take collective decisions, and that's what we do, what we love, love to do as a species, um, and what we struggle with. Because of course, it's complicated to take decisions collectively when you and the more you scale um, the, the the number of people the, the more difficult it becomes and and we have found um, a lot of tools and ways uh, to to processes uh, to take those collective decisions and um, the at the moment we have the impression and that's what motivates us at mission public that the way we take those collective decisions is not um fit anymore for the, the context we have in the 21st century. So we need to find new ways of doing that. And why? It's also because we have new problems, new challenges. So you were talking about space governance, internet governance. These are things where you have a, a global dimension, uh, something which uh, concerns all of us as humanity, uh, but um, which is entrenched in ways of um, collective decisions um, that are um, based on tools from the 19th and 20th century, um, nation states, international negotiations, um, opinion poll for tools of the 20th century, elections. So the, the thinking we have at, at Mission Public is how do we um, improve or how do we adapt those uh, decision makings for the 21st century? And th this is where we, uh, one of the, the best um, tool we have and we, we love to do is citizen participation and deliberation. Thank you. And in terms of how your work at Mission Public relates to Participedia, I wanted to ask about your engagement with your cluster, the Democracy, the Democracy Across Borders cluster. What themes or issues have you been thinking through there? Yeah, so it was, um, so we started the work a year and a half ago, I think, and I was uh, very honored to be invited to, to that group. Uh, because indeed a lot of the thinking we do um, and, and I do in, in my work as at Mission Public is to, to think about how do we scale citizen participation. Uh, we know citizen participation in the form of deliberative processes, uh, processes with ordinary citizens, randomly selected, um, or participatory budgeting. All those tools have been around since um, 30 years, for the oldest one almost 50 years. Um, and so we have a very good uh, basis of experience at the local level, at the regional level. We start having a very good basis at the national level. The question is what happens uh, when you scale to the transnational or global level? And that's a, a nut that needs to be uh, cracked <laughs> because indeed, as I said before, uh, many of the problems we now have are at that problem, transnational, 
I mean, migrations, climate, I, I, I told about a, a couple of other topics before, but I think, so that's, um, how do we, do we scan this? So the cluster on transnational democracy for me is a place uh, where we can talk about that and, and see what is being done in the field and to all the participating cases and all the, the experience that has been gathered from all the partners, all the people on the field and how you collect that, how you organize that to make it available for others. But that's a very good exercise also to um, take a step back, reflect on what we have been doing and um, share it with the wider community. And as the director of Mission Public, uh, as well as the work you have there in terms of, like you said, the evaluation of citizen participation and global innovation, I want to ask how much does this inform your cases with the cluster, especially in terms of transnational citizens assemblies and transnational social movements as a part of our knowledge mobilization strategy here? So what is very interesting is that um, we we start by doing things at Mission Public. So for example, if you take the, the Global Citizens Dialogue on the future of the internet, and um, we started with that basic question being, okay, internet is um, impacting every human being, even if 50% of the world population has no access to the internet, they are um, impacted by it. Why? Because if you if they buy a good or a service in their country, it mostly is backed by some kind of internet somewhere uh, for the transportation, for the infrastructure, whatever. So we we asked ourselves, okay, but um, how do we, how is internet governed, the internet governed? And that's a huge question. And if it indeed impacts everyone, we need to involve everyone in that. So we decided to deploy that dialogue and we, we did it. Um, and, and then came the, so we, we, it was a process that started in 2017 and we had the first wave of the global dialogue in 2020. And then we started to reflect upon it. Um, and that's very important. That's where um, having a peer, a group of peers in the cluster, for example, is very interesting because you can start um, comparing different ways of approaching um, a transnational dialogue, things that are, that seem to, to be um, the same everywhere. So the, the necessity uh, to um, struggle with uh, multiple languages, um, questions like, are you doing a centralized or decentralized process? Um, and I know that, for example, um, the Global Assembly on, on Climate, they went for a centralized process and that uh, John will be able to um, talk with you about that. We decided to have a decentralized process um, and now, as we are together in that uh, cluster, um, it's interesting to to compare this and to understand what is the what seem to be the the key uh, quality criteria, the key elements of transnational deliberation, and what are things that are case by case. And and it's a, it's a learning process because we are at the very beginning of those processes, um, in terms of experience, in terms of uh, deployment. So we we still have a, a lot to learn. And that's a a good place to be uh, to do that. I see. So you've been working on different processes, uh, variations of design implementations to further this mobilization strategy. And I've also heard that the cluster is working on a synthetic paper, for example, publishing the special collections and gathering resources for the summer school. So I want to ask, what is the value in evaluating citizen participation through this kind of research and practice? 
Yeah, I, I mean, evaluation is, is, a, is a key because, because you learn. In, in 2015, we deployed the um, worldwide views on climate and energy together with uh, the Danish Board of Technologies. Um, and it was um, a very interesting process in, in the frame of the COP21, uh, Climate COP21. So the, the, the case is in, in Participedia also, so you can find it there. Um, and we, um, we had our evaluation was um, twofold. First was, okay, um, that kind of global dialogue works at scale. We had uh, 76 countries, more than 10,000 participants that all worked on the same topic um, to give input to the COP21 in Paris, to the uh, Climate Conference of Parties. That worked very well. But then we went to the international negotiation and we tried to bring the results to negotiators, politicians, civil society. And that was very difficult. It was very difficult. So our evaluation was, okay, we need to change something fundamental in the way we approach the process. And that is what we did with, with the internet. So with the internet, we did the reverse thing. We started by gathering stakeholders, politicians, governments, inter international organization, the public and private sector into a coalition of actors. And with that coalition of actors, we um, asked them to find the right questions to ask to citizens. So instead of um, coming and saying, we are going to, to deliver you what citizens say about climate, we said, okay, what do you want citizens to answer you? So we reversed the process and that and, and it worked very well because then we had questions for which decision makers were really struggling to find an answer. And that and as a result of that, we had very good feedback and very good um, way of uh, introducing the results into the policy uh, discussion and into the decision-making process. And that is due to evaluation. Why? Because we evaluated worldwide views in 15, we saw that there was a, a limitation, a big limitation on that. So we went to the next one. Now that we have evaluated and are uh, still learning from with the internet, we know what we will change for the next one. I don't know if you want to hear about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just about to ask about that. I would love to hear more about that, yes. <laughs> so indeed the, the next one, and that's um, I think something which is also related with the, the work in the uh, cluster and transnational um, um, deliberation and the summer school um, is that what we um, saw is that for with the internet we, we came with um, um, an, a clear idea of what the methodology should be in all the countries. So what we did was find and train partners in all those countries for one specific method. And by doing that, it has a huge advantage because you you have something very standardized. Um, you also are able to do capacity building for partners in some countries where they don't have that capacity and that, that knowledge about deliberation. At the same time, it's a very Western way uh, and top-down uh, approach to deliberation. Because what we did was train people to um, one style of deliberation Although for half of them, they had a very strong and long experience of doing citizens' engagement with other means and in a very different cultural context. So the main learning from with the internet was the next time what we do is we do it with the partners. And that's where for us, the summer school uh, also comes in. 
is because we we have the the strong feeling now that when you if you want to deploy a transnational dialogue you need from the design phase to work with the partners in the countries to understand and, and to build together a, a method uh, which is going to work in every country but which is also going to deliver global results so let's say that's the next iteration and now we are working on that with um, a group of uh, partners and fellows from from mission public but also for us it's the place it, it can be the summer school can be a, a leverage for that for partners from all over the world to learn about the, the state of the research and for researchers to learn about the stage and the state of uh, the practice in many countries and that's also due to evaluation because each time when you evaluate you understand what you have to iterate okay thank you for that wrap up of uh, what you're doing at Pride Speedia right now uh, the cluster work plus the importance of evaluation but i wanted to clarify one thing i'm i'm not really i'm not i'm a, I'm a little bit confused on it so so far you've mentioned transnational dialogue transnational assemblies and regular citizen assemblies i wanted to ask what is the difference there like are there some trends that you see and differ between them or are there similarities between them um i i've seen no substantial difference oh okay and um, what the difference is elsewhere the the difference is how do you um connect different scales mm. so and, and for me it comes to the the one very 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 important question is um that um question about um centralized versus decentralized um, dialogues and so on the one side you have the advantage of having a centralized dialogue or citizen participation is that indeed you bring the diversity the transnationality in one room and so that's for example what we did uh, last year with the conference on the future of europe uh, we had um, we ran four uh, citizens panels um, each of them had 200 citizens from all eu countries so we had in a way 24 languages 27 countries in one room for each of those. So that's transnationality that you bring in a place. And that's fantastic because in a, in a, in a group of work, you work, for example, on uh, European security and you have someone from uh, Greece and someone from Sweden and someone from Spain talking together about co collective security in Europe. And you can add a German to the equation uh, and, and you talk about defense and, and security and it's very interesting. So that's one solution. The problem of that is uh, scale because you can't, um, at some point, the you have to have interpretation and interpretation is um, not linear, it's uh, exponential. The complexity of interpretation uh, goes exponential with a number of languages because you need to, to have uh, bridges, you need to, um, and the costs, and the costs are horrendous of uh, interpretation. So, um, so then you, you have that trade-off because you can't go uh, for many people. And that's a problem because at some point you want to reach the people. So the other way is decentralized dialogues. And that's what we love to do because it scales very fast and very good. Because what you do is you develop a method, a design, and then you can copy paste it in um, 200 places. Um, and some of those places can be a very local uh, place. Another one can be a national one. 
And you can imagine a transnational one between two or three countries with the same method. And it scales fantastically. But the problem of that is that, of course, you create a kind of a silo based on the geography. Because then it's not transnational in a room, it's transnational in the aggregation of the results. Because you can compare results from place to place. You can compare results from country to country and from continent to continent. But in a way, you have not put the people in the same room. And of course, so, but, but, but you can scale very fast and it's uh, much cheaper because you don't have interpretation. You have much less uh, travel. Um, so it's uh, another design. So for me, the, the, the problem is not uh, um, the difference between national or transnational is, is more because you can also have a, in one country something centralized or decentralized. And I think that's the one of one part of the, the big uh, design question is here, um, and and you have, yeah so that's that's more the, the dimension I would think uh, along. Okay, thank you for clarifying that for me, and to wrap up on this point of you know connecting different scales and interpretation these different types of assemblies transnational and local. Um, what do you expect the future of citizen participation, both globally and locally, to look like? Yeah, so I think we, I think we are going to to have more and more of those those um, multi level, and and it's going to be going to be very interesting to um, test and to to improve um, those vertical uh, connections. Um, so how do you how do you have uh, many local assemblies uh, that can send ambassadors to a, a continental, <laughs> more transnational, and back? Um, how do you? But even at at a, at a national level, if you have a citizens assembly at a national level, how do they connect back to the to the territory? Uh, because because it's a it's a very important um, connection to make. So I think one one question will be about that. Another question um, will be um, about the, uh, the third dimension. Uh, and with that, I mean, um, what is going to happen? Um, okay, it's, I know it's very hype uh, with the metaverse. We are working on that at, at Mission Public um, because it, we, we have the, the strong feeling and, and the intuition that this can be um, a tool uh, to, um, to improve how we do transnational uh, dialogues. And, and citizen participation. And why that is because you can combine a sense of um, being there, so face-to-face, -face, with uh, a couple of digital tools. And you can try to, um, uh, to, to have the advantages of both. Well, we know, we know from research that um, virtual reality is much more engaging for the brain than a 2D screen. Because if you put someone in a, in a virtual environment, uh, in the 3D virtual environment, their body is going to produce much more oxytocin, so that uh, hormone for happiness, than in the front of a, of a screen, in a 2D screen. And you know that engagement is much stronger too, because people don't have another uh, thing to do. Uh, I mean, take their smartphone, look around. So you have an engagement which is almost uh, as strong as in a real face-to-face um, -face moment. So that's very interesting. But at the same time, you can have the advantages of a digital participation because um, you can have people um, connecting without moving. Uh, and that's very strong, very important. 
Of course, there is uh, the classical problem of accessibility and um, and the way of how you work with the hardware, but but that's things that technically are progressing very fast. And also one advantage of that will be interpretation, because you see that uh, you start having um, good software for um, simultaneous interpretation, um, and that's okay. That's not the level of a professional one, but I think. This, this is going to be um, one of the directions, is how the, um, the, the technologies around the metaverse are going to, to be a support for that. So that's, I think, one um, direction. And there is, um, yeah, I think that's maybe at global level. Of course, there is, I mean, for the, the future, that's the, 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 let's say the, the bright future, and we can hope that we will see more and more of them because there is, um, we, we are at, at a tipping point in terms of, um, of institutionalization. Um, as, um, as we started to fundraise and, and launch the dialogue on climate, the global dialogue on climate in 2013, there was no eco. People were, were even saying that it was a bad idea to, to get ordinary citizens on board of a discussion on climate. Um, and I rem remember a lot of discussions at uh, the um, negotiation uh, on climate in 2013 and 14, where people still said, okay, that let that to the expert, because normal people don't understand uh, what it is about, and it, it's not good. We are not there anymore. Um, we are not there anymore, and there is absolutely no case left in which I am confronted to that kind of... Um, narrative that it's bad to have citizens on board. And that has changed dramatically. If you look at the European Union and the way they are now institutionalizing citizens' deliberation in their policy process, that's, that there is a world. So to come back to where we go in the future, I think uh, we have reached a tipping point. I think in some countries and regions, it's something that is going to go on growing and being institutionalized and normalized in a way. The question is, um, where are we at the global level? Here we are not at, at the level we should be, and I'm not, uh, and I don't know if we will be. If you take climate, climate, and we have seen it again with the COP27, has again been done without really articulating and understanding what citizens want. And that's the same for many, many, um, many pieces of um, biodiversity is the same. I mean, we have things that are upcoming like genome editing, um, um, I mean, ge geoengineering, you have big questions where yeah, people are not on board and that's, that's uh, oceans is, a, is another topic. Um, and, and that's, so for the future, there I'm not sure. I'm, I'm glad you brought up digital tools because that's what we have been focusing on in Participedia as well. And, you know, finding ways to utilize technology for participation of quote-unquote ordinary citizens, as you mentioned. So considering our passion for that, what do you hope to be able to contribute, explore, or learn from the Participedia community? Yeah, I mean, wow, that's that's a good question. So um, maybe first on digital tools. As we as we prepared with the internet, um, we, we, we were ready to go in um, January, when was that? January 20? and then COVID came. Okay, so we had planned for 100 face-to-face -face dialogues. Um, 
yeah, at the end, we had 80 uh, dialogues. Half of them were online in October 2020. But that's interesting because what happened is that many of the partners we had uh, all over the world said, okay, it's a no-go, we can't do it face-to-face. Uh, -face. So we need to use uh, digital tools. At Mission Public, we were quite um, against <laughs> because uh, of many reasons um, why face-to-face -face meetings are, are much stronger. And we, we stick to that because indeed, again, our body, our biology is such um, that if you put people in a room physically, they are going to start producing a lot of hormones uh, that make um, um, decision making and, and finding compromise much easier. Uh, people are, um, we, we, we just stick to it biologically, being together, uh, it's something very strong. So digital for us was a, a, a worst uh, version of that. It doesn't have to be, um, and we learned that in 2020, uh, thanks to our partners all over the world. So that's a, a very strong learning. Um, and if you ask me what we can learn from Participedia, it's the same. So what is what are the, the practices in using digital tools um, and what do they bring and what are the limitations? Because of course, if you if you start using uh, those tools and you think globally, you, you will have indeed the problem that uh, each second human being, a bit less now, has never seen uh, a digital tool because they have no internet. Um, so that's really something that you need to take into account. And you can you can go around that because you can send a, a kit uh, with uh, the hardware and the software, but then you, you need to, to have the layer of digital literacy. So you have to, to, to train people to use it. And we know from, um, from processes in, in France and Germany that even there you need to train people uh, to use digital tools. So it's not, a, it's not something that would be a problem only in the global south. It's, it's something that you have everywhere. Um, but indeed, I think the, what part of the solution will be the diffusion of technology. And we see how fast and it can go. Part of it is learning from another what has worked and what doesn't work. I remember in 2000, again, in 2014-15 for the dialogue on climate, um, our partners in, in West Africa, what they did uh, was to um, speak the information materials aloud and put them on, um, on micro, micro, card, um, micro card and then give them to people so the people could put them in their phone and hear the information material. And here you see how uh, it's a very practical way of um, overcoming the, the problem of literacy and people not being able to read, uh, but they had access to the information of the deliberative process through their phone. Uh, so that's the kind of way you can use digital tools too. And that was uh, seven years ago. So in the meantime, you have much more capacities. As students doing this podcast, we really appreciate your emphasis on digital tools. I mean, we're doing a podcast and plus introducing us to citizen dialogue on many levels, the connections, the links between them. So once again, thank you for your participation. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. Wrapping up the research of Dr. Antoine and John, having explored citizen participation on many levels and the hope that comes with it, I would like to turn to two people that I'm sure will continue both of these themes. Jenna and Joyce, welcome back, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, so looking back at, at the experiences and challenges you had when running a cluster developing global assemblies, how would you say they, in, they inform your next steps? I'd say, I think one of the 
challenges, but also one of the really cool things about it is that our work is very broad. So we're not researching, you know, one super narrow question, like, you know, what specifically is the most effective way to like overcome linguistic barriers in a transnational citizens assembly. But instead, we're trying to sort of like set the scope for the study of that field as a whole. And so it's interesting because it means that we're grappling not with like answering one question in like the the most accurate or most correct way, um, but that we're trying to be like very inclusive with how widely we're looking at things, but at the same time, not being so vague that it like loses its value. So balancing that specificity with not trying to like cut things out of the scope before, you know, prematurely is I think one of the really interesting things about what we're doing. Yeah, and I think just to add about, um, add to Jenna's comment about how a lot of our work can oftentimes have a pretty broad scope, I'd say that at least through our work on the synthetic paper, um, that's something that's come up again and again, just because trying to find and define relevant cases is because this field is so new, as challenging as it is rewarding. Um, but I think the more cases that we go through, the more experiences with the field that we have, the more conversations that we have with experts and organizers in the field, the better the grasp Jenna and I kind of develop on um, what we're studying and why it matters. And so the work we do, I think, contributes to that, whether that's hearing about the challenges running the Global Assembly from John and the organizers he's introduced us to, hearing about the technical features of transnational deliberation from Antoine, um, hearing about other people in our cluster discuss the initiatives they've coordinated and the lessons they've learned from that. All of that is really helpful in helping set that scope. And so we're really lucky to be able to have that supporting us. And we're really excited for our next steps all in all. And finally, I'll ask this question to both Dr. Antoine and John. I would also love to hear your perspectives as students. Uh, what do you hope to be able to contribute, explore, or learn from the Partspedia community? Yeah, um, in terms of what I hope to be able to contribute, I guess it's it's weird to say it, especially because, you know, the people we're working with are experts in their fields, have so much experience and are just so knowledgeable about what they're doing. So it's like Joyce and I coming in as these, you know, little sophomores thinking about what we're able to contribute, I think is for the most part, our, our enthusiasm, the amount of time and energy we want to put into it. And hopefully that that is able to have an impact in, in such an exciting community. Um, and I think in terms of what I want to sort of gain from the community, I think what I really like about this and what sets it apart from, I think, most research assistant roles, although I've never had a different RA role, so I wouldn't know exactly, but is that I think it exposes you to a little bit of everything in that, like, we're working on a lot of different projects all at the same time. Everyone we meet is a professional working in, like, a different field um, or is not an academic, but is a practitioner. Um, and it just means that everyone is looking at the same question with a different set of eyes. And I think that that you you can hear it even in like any of our working group discussions that everyone in the group also respects the different types of expertise that are present and will ask like oh this is what I'm thinking but you know like Terry one of the people in our working group like you as someone who really looks at social movements like what would you think about this um just means that I think it's 
it's a really great opportunity to have, especially as younger people who, you know, obviously are just setting our feet into the world of like political science and academia as a whole. Yeah, and I think Jenna raises something really valuable about how a lot of people in Purchasepedia are willing to engage and discuss and um, discover by virtue of that. And I think I'd extend that even outside their cluster to say that even though Purchasepedia as an entity is comprised of a very a variation of different clusters. So for example, there's also a human and political rights cluster. There's a digital democracy cluster. Um, there's also so much room for those clusters to intersect. And academically, there are also so many overlaps between what each of these spheres entails. And so both Jenna and I love the fact that we never leave a conversation that we hold through Participedia, not having learned something or not more excited about democracy and its future. And I think just our work with the Democracy Across Borders cluster um, is something that will allow us to continue that um, journey of discovery and learning. And so that's also something we're definitely both excited to continue contributing to, but also excited to continue benefiting from. I'm also going to be leaving this episode very excited, especially because this was a, a lot different than the episodes we normally do. It was the first cluster episode we did, and also the first episode where you, the RAs, introduced and concluded the episode. That's why, first of all, I'd like to thank you personally for all your support and making this a lot less nerve-wracking for me. And I'd also like to thank you on behalf of the podcast for your participation. Thank you for being with us on this episode of Just Participation. The next one is going to be about art and decolonizing our minds, which is which is genuinely an episode that I've been looking forward to for a long time. We can't wait to share it with you. So see you there.